Hi, this is Chris Clearfield, co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best. Have you noticed how technology is not only adding improvements to our lives, but complexity as well? For instance, we just installed a new washer and dryer in our house, and the dashboard of those devices resemble more of an airplane cockpit than they do a simple utility room convenience. And it's not just at home, it's at work as well. If you've looked at the headlines recently, you've seen that Target's been hacked, you saw that Equifax lost over 100 million customer accounts, and it seems like every time you turn around, another social media service like Facebook has admitted to being infiltrated. When it feels like we're having a meltdown, it's because we are. And that's just what my next guest, Chris Clearfield, co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It, explains. He shares some great insights as to the underlying causes of why our systems are getting more complex and how to deal with that complexity to head off some of the inevitable problems that will occur if we don't change our thinking. We also touch upon the myth of the open door policy, which I love. This is an episode I'm sure you'll enjoy. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Chris Clearfield. Before starting System Logic, Chris worked as a derivatives trader at a prestigious proprietary trading firm focused on understanding and hedging risk. After years as a trader in New York, Tokyo, and Hong Kong, his role matured from trading to analyzing the Fed, uh, financial and regulatory risks inherent in the business of technologically complex high-speed trading to devising policies that mitigate those risks. He co-authored Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What You Can Do About It, with Andras Tilshik, a Toronto-based business school professor, to tell us how and why. He graduated from Harvard College, where he studied physics and biology, and is a licensed commercial pilot. He now lives and works in Seattle, Washington, with his wife and family. Welcome, Chris. Hi. Thanks for having me, Will. It's a pleasure. Chris, tell us, growing up, can you tell me about a time when you worked with either a mentor, family member, teacher who recognized a talent that you had. And because of that, it led to you feeling more confident about your ability to explore more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a, a physics professor in high school. I went to kind of a, a, a science and mathy high school. And so this physics professor, a, a friend of mine and I, we found his PhD thesis in the library. And, of course, we didn't understand a word of it. But we took it to him and said, can you explain this? And he really put a lot of time into um, helping us understand it and actually eventually kind of brought us on board. And we, we formed a small team, with myself and two other students, and we actually ended up doing some, some serious research with him. And so it was really, I think, a, a kind of an amazing example of somebody, uh, you know, really taking the time to invest and, and mentor me, which was, I mean, to this day, has just made a tremendous impact in my life. Do you still remember the physics teacher's name? Oh, yeah, Jonathan Cohan. I will remember it forever. And I'm sure it was Mr. Cohan when you were there, right? <laughs> yeah, well, Professor Cohan, yep. Professor. Professor Cohan, great. What did you learn from, he went above and beyond what he was required to do as a teacher. What did you learn from that experience and the relationship that you developed as he took you under his wing. Well, you know, I'm, I, I learned a lot. I mean, I learned a lot about just just life uh, and the kind of chaos of life. I became good friends with with their family, and I'm actually the the godparent to their youngest child. Um, 
And but but beyond that, I learned uh, I, I learned a lot about science, and, and I think I learned a lot about science pretty quickly. Uh, what I learned was that when you're doing science, you don't always have the answer, and sometimes you get an answer that you don't expect. And and both of those things were really really powerful. I think I I kind of learned from from him that the world is not a straightforward and linear place, uh, and you kind of never know where surprises come from. And Sometimes those surprises can be good and interesting, as they were with some of the work that we did together. Um, and sometimes they can be, you know, big and, and tragic and have big negative impacts, um, as the, some of the work that I've kind of looked at since then. So one of your first jobs after college was working for Jane Street Capital. Can you describe what you did there initially? Sure, yeah. So I started at Jane Street. I started as a trader. At Jane Street, what that meant is that I was somebody who used computers to understand how much things were worth kind of in in real time and to make decisions about buying and selling stocks or mostly using computers to buy and sell stocks. And, And Jane Street was the kind of place when I was there that they didn't have a lot of sensitivity to what the what the company that we were trading did. You know, if we were trading IBM, it sort of didn't really matter what IBM's business was or, you know, what IBM's quarterly revenues were. It just mattered the kind of data that we could get from the market um, and the data that we could get electronically and in real time. And so I traded things that were um, probabilistic. In other words, we were making kind of, you know, lots of small coin flips uh, is sort of how we thought about it. And if we won enough of those coin flips, then then we were we were having a trading a profitable strategy. And I also traded things that were more deterministic, where there were really strong relationships between, you know, let's say a stock and some kind of derivative or a company and really something whose value directly depended on the trading value of that of that company. And so I kind of traded both of those things. And then what what were you talking about? is looking at things that had a high likelihood of occurring because you don't know for sure. And then you were going into looking at the issues that were deterministic that had some causality to them. It wasn't just a correlation. There was causality there, wasn't there? Yeah, that's exactly right, Bill. That's a great way of, of, of breaking that down. Yep. And once you got into this analysis, that led to expanding your role, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And so I I moved and, and started trading in Tokyo and then Hong Kong. We moved the office from Tokyo to Hong Kong. And, you know, that was really interesting for me because I got to see a much broader picture of what was going on, you know, from the computer hardware to, you know, all the way to the, the trading decisions we were making in the market to the kind of regulatory background that we were doing and, and things like that. And so all in, I, I did that for see, probably about five years before my role kind of shifted, kind of once I understood the trading and once I understood the the kind of infrastructure and the regulatory stuff and the way everything kind of came together, I, I switched to a role where I was looking at these kind of bigger questions of risk and, and sort of asking questions about, well, how does Jane Street as a firm, how did we think about this risk? How do we develop computer systems that, that managed it? And I was sort of, um, I, I would say, maybe integrating a lot of those different ideas. What's fascinating is that you're coming into a system that was probably largely dominated by people who were in computer science and financial studies and economics, and you brought 
interdisciplinary perspectives about biology and living systems, as well as physics. Did you ever reflect on that and think, gosh, these people just don't understand how so many of these things connect to each other? You know, it's interesting. Jane Street actually was, a lot of it was interdisciplinary in the way that I was interdisciplinary. A lot of computer scientists, but also a lot of uh, scientists and mathematicians and, and stuff like that. I think that the thing that I did start bringing at some level, which then really ties into the later work and, and research from, from the book, was thinking, which Jane Street did some of, but also thinking a little bit about the kind of human element. So the other thing that, that as I was trading in Asia, you know, during the financial crisis and, and sort of watching some companies fall apart and go bankrupt and, and others that did really well, that was a really interesting time. And I was also learning to fly. You mentioned that I'm a commercial pilot, so I was learning to fly at that time. Uh, but I really couldn't fly in Asia. They just don't have the infrastructure for, for small aircraft. Uh, and so I was reading a ton about airplane accidents and, you know, why they happen and why the role of automation in people misunderstanding automation and the role of complexity and the role of the, the way that the crews interact and make decisions together. And so it was really, um, for me, that was an interesting revelation. I got to see kind of the financial crisis on one hand, and then I was also studying how aviation has dealt with some of these risks. And, and that, to me, kind of planted the seed of this question, which is why do some organizations do a great job of making decisions in really complex environments and managing risk, and, and others do not? That was part of the, the genesis of the book. Interesting. So a 100 years after aviation took off, we're still dealing with some of these risks that you know, needed to be managed because some of them are involving weather that you can't control, but many of them, I'm sure as, as you were studying with some of these crashed flights, were very much able to be managed by, in hindsight at least. Well, and yeah, and what's interesting is aviation has now figured out how to manage a lot of these risks prospectively. And if you look at the safety record in commercial aviation, you know, in the airliners, um, in, in air carriers, I mean, it's just gotten tremendously better from the 1970s to, to now. And some of that is because of technology, but some of accidents are also caused by technology. So it's a really interesting laboratory to sort of understand and ask, why have things gotten so much better? What has changed? We found that really, my co-author Andras and I, we found that really fertile ground as we as we looked into the book and asked these, asked these big questions of how do people manage this kind of risk. And I'm thinking about that period right after you're doing this, as you were studying for your flight license, a few years ago, you decided to launch your own firm. What was that decision like in order to say, I am going to be doing this because? What was your reason for launching your own firm? And what were some of the, the decisions you made and steps that you took to do that? A part of it was really driven by BP and the, and the BP Deepwater Horizon accident, the big oil spill in the Gulf that Obviously, you know, tragic loss of life, huge environmental consequences, and billions and, you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, spent dealing with the aftermath of that accident. And so for me, I looked at that, and first of all, as I investigated the accident, I realized this actually has a lot in common with airline crashes and what what happened in the financial crisis. And I don't think that was a that was that's not a revelation that I've heard a lot of people talk about. The BP crisis yeah. occurred 
two years after the big financial crisis. So the financial exactly. meltdown occurred in 2008. Now, followed on the heels yep. of that in 2010, we had the BP oil spill. So they were really close together. And was it part of your work that you were assigned to look at the horizon accident? No, it wasn't part of my work. It was uh, part of my passion. So I was really interested in understanding what happened. And as I dug in more and more, and there was a lot of great investigatory work done in the public domain and by BP also, as I dug in more and more, I became fascinated with how the accident happened. And it turns out that it looked a lot like the financial crisis. It looks a lot like mortgage-backed securities. It also looks a lot like how people make bad decisions in an airplane cockpit or things like the the space shuttle Challenger explosion. So it looks like these big things, but what was fascinating was there was this kind of common set of small causes. And so as I thought about this, two things really struck me. One was, you know, the greatest environmentalist in the last 50 years might have been a petroleum engineer at BP who said, no, this isn't the right way to do this. We, we should make different decisions. And that was kind of fascinating because that's not how we usually think of environmentalism and, and petroleum engineering. But it really struck me that, that a different perspective on this, on the operations leading up to the accident could have, you know, changed the world in a tremendous way. And it wouldn't have been an enormous difference to get that right. I mean, the effects would have been, would have been big, obviously, but the kind of, the steps to get that right weren't out of reach for any organization. Uh, and then the other thing I thought, and the other thing that really inspired me to join with Andrash and start a consulting firm was, well, look, you know, this is a, an important way to make the world better. I mean, these problems have real consequences, whether it's big environmental problems or, you know, just financial distress for a company that has to then lay people off or, um, you know, people's lives get disrupted, things like that. Customers don't get the products that, that they want or are made sick by those products. So we started to think, okay, there is, there is A, some commonalities here, kind of shared DNA between these failures, and B, that people will start to realize that, realize that there's, there are things happening in the world that they don't quite understand that might affect their business, and that they will start to be willing to kind of buy down some of that risk and buy down the ability or buy the ability to make better decisions by working with a firm like ours that can help them think through how complexity causes these kind of big failures and also how they can make better decisions in this complex environment. So that's a, a complex idea that you're putting into the marketplace. Give me an example of a company that you worked with and what they were struggling with when they approached you. Because it's always easy to see in hindsight, oh, we should have made sure that that hatch was closed or <laughs> kept the flammable liquid away sure. from the furnace. Sure. So what was, what was an example of someone who was struggling with this and came to you and you were able to work with them to make improvements, probably not just in the tactical situation where they were, but probably in the culture so that it imbued everyone's thinking to think differently about things. We worked with a major metropolitan area that was affected by a big natural disaster that hit uh, the, the northeast part of the country. And and after that disaster, the the kind of emergency managers in that region realized that a lot of stuff had caught them off guard. So they had sort of prepared for what we'll call the first order effects, but they hadn't prepared for any of the knock-on consequences that might happen. And this was, you know, a huge region, tens of millions of people, billions of, of dollars kind of, you know, flowing through the region. Businesses were, were very important. 
the people we worked with was a chief risk officer who directly oversaw uh, on the order of a hundred people, but um, in kind of an influence way, oversaw you know probably uh, worked with a thousand people across a bunch of different organizations that all had to pull in the right direction to get this kind of thing right. So it was a really uh, a really challenging structure to work in. There was a lot of influence and persuasion versus control, and those two things really had to go together. What was interesting in working with the, the chief risk officer was sort of helping them see how they missed these kind of knock-on consequences and also doing specific work with them to help them train their people to be a little bit more, I'll say nimble, a little bit more agile, a little bit more nimble. It's not about figuring out what hatch to close. It's about developing a different perspective and saying, oh, these things might interact in a way that causes a big problem. And so we were able to do some really hands-on training with them that, that put them in kind of simulated situations where they had to make these kind of decisions and they had to work together across boundaries in their organization. And what that did was that meant that, you know, it's a little bit like a seatbelt, right? We wear a seatbelt not because we know the exact kind of accident we're going to get into. We wear a seatbelt because we want to protect ourselves regardless of the accident. And that's how we kind of thought of this this work with them. You know, it was training that didn't prepare them necessarily for a specific problem like the, you know, the proverbial hatch being open, but it prepared them to sort of view the landscape in a very different way. And it was a really, I think uh, they, they came away with it with a really different perspective on how that failure had happened that wasn't connected to a set of specific failures, but was connected to the kind of complexity in their in their region and in their operation. I think what that training did was it really gave them the confidence that they were able to, the next time these things came up, they were able to not only deal with it in real time, but also see the precursors. So they were able to see the kind of small issues that might otherwise grow into big ones, and they were able to fix those small issues before they had a chance to interact. And and I think those two things really kind of came together and meant that they were much more prepared for the kind of next shock that might hit their system. So it's an interesting world we live in because certainly complexity is a trend. And really, that's an oversimplification. It's an inexorable tidal wave (laughs) crashing down upon us repeatedly. And it's a challenge to keep up with the rate of change that is fostered largely and driven by technology. And there are many secondary effects of that that come about, you know, as you alluded to, different natural disasters and effects that are created by our technology advance that influence the environment. And you're talking about some of the small changes that people could make that make all the difference. Talk us to, through a little bit about how someone who's in an industry or runs a company and has responsibilities can be thinking about these things more broadly than they do now and some of the specific steps that you would encourage people who are running companies, running divisions, need to be thinking about as part of their everyday decision-making. One of the insights was from our research and from the book was that in this day and age, as you put it, there is so much more interconnectedness and complexity. And and what that means is that, and also I will say once a problem happens, 
it can be much harder to stop. You know, you you publish something on the internet that is wrong. You can't you can't kind of pull that back. Once the genie's out of the bottle, you you can't pull that back. I mean, what our observation has been, and what our thesis is, is really that. If you look at the world, the kind of mistakes that people are making are not so much the big obvious ones anymore. A lot of those have been have been made. What people are struggling with now are these small mistakes that kind of pile up and and spiral out of control. And so with that, there are a number of things. One example we can think about with our systems is we can start really looking at our systems and characterizing uh, this. So we have a quiz on our website. If you go to quiz.rethinkrisk.net, it asks some simple questions. And one of those questions is something like, how many things in this project have to go right for this project to succeed? If that answer is two and you can control both of those things, then that's a fairly straightforward project. If that answer is eight and you're depending on maybe lots of different groups or outside vendors, then all of a sudden, if one or two of those things doesn't go well, you can expect a pretty big disruption in your whole project. So one of the ways we think about this is just giving people some tools to assess the kind of projects or the systems or, you know, the business initiatives are they expanding in a new area and a new market with new products and think about how, how many things have to go right for that to work. That's one example of the type of kind of assessment and thinking that we help decision makers and companies. We help CEOs think about. We help we help them do. I've noticed just through talking with a lot of CEOs and people who direct large projects that there's a tendency to oversimplify. So, for instance, in answer to your question, how many things have to go right in order for this project or this effort or this initiative to succeed? I know a lot of people who would say, oh, just one or two, like, all of the things have to arrive on time in this complex supply chain. Right. And we have to have at least 40% response to our advertising. That's all. Those two right. things. Go make it happen. Right. <laughs> there tends to be a, a way for people to either oversimplify and get too far away or get too caught up in the details and think, oh, my goodness, there are endless numbers of things that have to be controlled. How do you help someone who is vacillating between those two points and it might be several people in a group, but how do you help them come to a reasonable assessment that will lead to meaningful decision-making? I think one of the cool things about the research that we were able to do is we really identified a set of tools that a decision-maker can use to make these kinds of decisions, right? Because these are hard decisions. This isn't – most of these are not decisions we make every day. We don't choose to – expand in a new market or, uh, you know, start a new product or or something like that. So those aren't decisions that we have a lot of experience and intuition with. And as a result, what the the research shows is that we need to add structure to our thinking. Well, we worked with a CTO of a publicly traded company. They were a technology company. They had less than a 1,000 employees, so they actually could make some some pretty meaningful changes throughout the organization. But what they, they didn't need much, it turned out. And so they were looking at um, basically big questions about how they could optimize their marketplace and how they could optimize the way that they rolled out new technology and supported new kinds of transactions in their marketplace. And so what we were able to do, we were able to, to go in and work with them and sort of identify what they were trying to do and realize that they were, in fact, trying to make this, this kind of big, complex decision. With that, we were able to just add some tools, add some tools that help them 
take this big nebulous decision, uh, get all of the experience of the engineers that were, let's say, working on an aspect of this product, convince those engineers or provide a structure where those engineers were comfortable speaking up and monitoring what was working and what wasn't working, and then use a couple of relatively simple tools to help them take that abstract decision and make it quite concrete and make them choose between what the most important criteria were for an expansion, for example, what the most important criteria were for what they needed their technology to do. And with that, they were able to move forward in a way that was, I would say, much more, make a, make a decision that was much more rigorous, uh, reduce their risk, but also get to just kind of a better outcome on the upside, too. As you're listening to this, I know all of you can identify with situations where people have made the situation more complex than it needs to be. And by following some of this methodology that's described in Meltdown, Chris has just told us one of the secrets is coming up with a clear way to understand what it is that you're looking to solve. For instance, Edison didn't try to solve the whole infrastructure problem before he got a light bulb to work. He worked on just the filament in a vacuum chamber. And once he had that, then you work on the next problem. So it's a very important point. Thank you for bringing that up, Chris. And I think one aspect of that, which is is quite interesting and a little bit counterintuitive, is that it turns out that the same approaches to reducing risk, the same approaches to reducing this chance of catastrophic failure, which is, say, uh, getting your, your team to work more closely together, getting your team, giving your team kind of uh, abilities to make concrete decisions and share ideas that aren't fully formed. That's, that's hugely important to preventing these kind of big failures, getting people to pay attention to small details that they don't understand. It turns out that those things also have a tremendous upside when we look at how organizations are able to innovate. So it's really interesting. Like with, with these tools, with thinking about your organizations in this way, thinking about how you can develop sensitivity in people to speak up about things that they see that aren't going right, for example. Those are the same things that help you innovate and, and roll out new products, which it turns out that that's, those are kind of two sides of the same coin. That's a pretty, pretty, it was a pretty unexpected result for us. So often we're trying things that, that we have not tried before or that even other people have tried before and failed. And so what you need to succeed in that is you need a kind of cadence of trying something, checking in, having a metric, seeing what works or what doesn't, and then iterating your approach. So in my personal life, the thing that, the thing that I get rewarded for is doing, I'll, I'll borrow the phrase from Cal Newport, doing deep work, right? Doing stuff where I'm, you know, my competitive advantage is I'm one of the only people that can think about the issue in this way. And so I track how much deep work I do every week. And what I do at the end of every week is I kind of add up all those periods of deep work. I, I see whether or not they met the goal I was trying to work towards for that week. And I kind of score myself on that. And then every week I am iterating. I'm saying, okay, this worked, this didn't work. I'm going to do more of this. I'm going to try something else in, in this way. And it's, it's only with that, because the world is so complex, because there are so many demands, um, it, it, it looks just like a company launching a new product. Uh, I'm kind of tied into this this cadence where I'm trying things, seeing what worked, getting input, seeing what didn't work, and then trying something new. There's this whole kind of loop and cycle for iteration. And tactically, what do you use? Do you use a spreadsheet? Do you use Evernote in order to track how many hours of deep work that you do? Yeah, well, you know, that has that has evolved, right, which is kind of cool. 
uh, for a while, I just tried to time it on my on my watch. That didn't work. I would get distracted or get into something. Now I use a uh, tomato timer, you know, where I, I do this deep work in kind of 25-minute blocks. And then I write it down on a piece of, you know, it logs it, but I, I also write it down on a piece of paper and then, yeah, I just put it in a, a plain old Excel spreadsheet. You know, it comes up in other ways too, Bill. I mean, my, with my, with my family, I have a five-year-old and as I was doing the research for the book, as we were doing the research on how teams manage crises, I kind of realized that my morning routine with my five-year-old looked a lot like a crisis. You know, very unexpected things coming up uh, seemingly out of nowhere uh, every morning. And so we really started iterating much more. You know, we, we came up with a chart. We started figuring out, okay, well, you know, the, the, we have this, these 15 minutes where we have to gather our things in the morning. So let's put jackets downstairs the night before. You know, this, I think this is kind of a common theme to the book. This stuff isn't rocket science and it doesn't cost a lot of money to do. But just by changing our routines, we can really, um, just by paying attention to these small things, we can really make a tremendous difference in in how we're able to how we're able to solve these big big complex problems. That's true. Let me just highlight that what Chris was talking about, folks, is is the Pomodoro method of the tomato timer, and that's very, something that many many people have spoken to me about is the efficiency of being able to set a timer for a specific period when you're focused on doing your highest and best work. Some people said it's 25 minutes. Some people said it to 35 or 45 minutes. And then you take a deliberate break afterward rather than letting your work be broken up by interruptions throughout that process. And I think what Chris has referred to as well as what Cal has told me and what I've found for myself is that there's a tremendous benefit to setting focused time on doing hardest issues and focusing your best talents and energies during one block of time. It's not rocket science. That's really true, Chris. It's not rocket science, but it's also an instance where people are playing for bigger and bigger stakes without applying yes. common sense. Common sense isn't always common practice, as you well know. What is it that you would say to people who are leaders who want to introduce more of this common sense into managing projects, especially complex projects, so that they end up more successful? Yeah, I, I would say two things. I would say the first thing is is kind of the, the realization that you said, it's sort of maybe adding on to that a little bit, which is that, we live in a different world now. So the tools that used to work to manage projects, you know, the kind of old style of having a big monolithic project and setting a bunch of deadlines at the end and you would roll out these features or whatever, uh, and then, you know, you'd kind of work on it for nine months and then, and then go, that doesn't work anymore because there is so much more that is unknown about how the world works. So I think the first thing I would say is that there needs to be a realization that the world needs to change and how we approach these big complex projects need need to change. I think that the kind of good news is that we all have these capabilities in our organizations already, in our teams already. So I'll give you a very concrete example, something that it's the, the size of this effect is really surprising. But research shows that just by starting a meeting a little bit differently. So you you gather your team together, you have to make some decision about what direction to take a project in, for example. Instead of saying the most important thing is that we come to a decision on this issue, here's what I think should be done. If you're the leader and you start the meeting that way, that leads to many fewer ideas being shared about the possible approaches you can take. If instead you say, the most important thing here is that we hear everybody's viewpoint. What do you all think should be done? 
then you generate roughly twice as many kind of pieces of input, twice as many pieces of data about your decision. And what, what the research shows is people also generate about 20% more solutions for these kind of big complex problems. The job of a leader in a complex environment, the job of a leader in this day and age, is not to be the one to come up with the solutions. The job of the leader is to facilitate their team coming up with the best solution. And that can be a challenge, right? I mean, we all, we, we got to leadership positions because we are smart and capable and, you know, good at thinking about problems. But as we integrate information from people who maybe know more about the specifics of, oh, here's what's going on in manufacturing, or here's what this kind of weird piece of data in our market research tells us, we need that information to come to the top. And the only way we get that information to come to the top is by running our groups in a different way, running our meetings in a different way, and really being intentional about tying in and and pulling out that input. In Meltdown, you and Andres talk about an example with how people make decisions in ER rooms when when patients come in with a hurt ankle. Can you describe what it is that they learned that makes the difference and how just flipping the order and adding a tool makes a huge difference? Yeah, this is a really a really surprising example. So this this um, this was done in in the 1990s. A, a group of physicians and researchers in in Toronto, in the Greater Toronto area, started looking at who was coming in with sprained ankles and who was getting ankle X-rays. And it turned out that a lot of people were getting X-rays that didn't need it. But the the clinicians, the the doctors, didn't really have the ability to figure out who needed an x-ray and who didn't. And so their default was kind of to send people to an x-ray. And, it, you know, on aggregate, this turns out to be really expensive. You're exposing lots of people to unnecessary radiation. Um, it's just, it's not so good. So what these researchers figured out is that they could ask just a handful of questions. Uh, the, the x-ray is only necessary if there's pain near the ankle and the person is over 55, they're unable to bear weight, and or the bone is tender. So it's kind of that first thing and any one of those following things. And it turns out that things like ankle swelling, which is this, you know, really visible indication that you sprained an ankle, they don't, they don't, that doesn't matter at all for whether or not you should get an x-ray, whether or not you're likely to have, have a break. And what's interesting about this is we can translate this same kind of thinking, the same kind of reasoning to how we say choose, you know, who is going to be our lead for a particular project, for example. You know, what we often do is we sort of say, okay, well, you know, this project needs someone who's going to work really well with the customer um, to, to help implement it. So, um, you know, Gary, he, he's really personable. But if we dig a little bit deeper, if we come up with a couple of criteria ahead of time, then we might say, for example, they need the ability to connect with a customer, but they also need the ability to get buy-in from the technology team internally. And they need an understanding of the software engineering that is behind this this project, for example. One of the things I found fascinating about reading the book was the explanation as to how people really don't like feedback and how prevalent that is and how that keeps people from speaking up when it's exactly the thoughts of the people who not necessarily are introverts, but who just might not think that what they have to offer is significant when it truly can be. Many, many leaders talk about having an open door policy. You know, they talk about wanting people can always come in and give input and things like that. And it turns out that an open door policy is not enough. You know, the, the, 
the way we respond to hierarchy is really deep down. It's a very kind of human biological response. And so you need much more than to have an open door policy. You need to work, really work on softening your power cue. A lot of senior managers think a lot about protecting their time. And that's really important, of course, right? You need to have time for for the deep work that we were just talking about. But you also need to have uh, unstructured time where people can come to you with a concern in an informal way, and you can hear that and have time to kind of reflect on it and make changes. Because what we know is that, like we were talking about before, you know, today's disasters do not come from one huge mistake. They come from a series of small failures that kind of combine together in these unexpected ways. Well, Chris, you've been so generous in sharing with us a lot of ways that complexity affects our lives and what we can do to reduce the risk and mitigate some of the effects of that. You talked about early on how you learned from a physics professor uh, in high school that the world is not linear. And that really opened up your thinking because you got different results than what you're expecting, and that still proved to be a value. You talked about how there are real consequences to these decisions, and it's often not the big thing that causes the problem, but it's the series of little things that could be avoided, that could be changed, that could be anticipated, that could be corrected. How many little things have to go right to succeed is a question that many leaders of projects, of companies, of divisions need to be asking themselves so that they could come up with a reasonable way of answering it in a manageable way so that they're addressing what is specific about their project that needs to be addressed. I loved the, the discussion about the myth of the open door policy because it re- really is something that I don't know if it's ever worked, but it's always touted as something that's really, really important in an organization to say that, oh, it's an open door policy. Come in and talk anytime you want. Thank you so much for sharing with me on my quest for the best. If you could just tell us one thing that you'd like us to remember and how to get in touch with you, then I'll wrap this interview and you have my sincere gratitude. Well, thanks. It was a real pleasure for me, too. There's really, uh, I think, three big takeaways. One, complexity is more prevalent than ever before, from technology to competition, and we just can't make decisions in the same way we used to. Um, and, and the kind of the flip side of that is that in these big complex systems, which many of us are, are running and working with every day, Failure is really expensive. It's expensive from a financial perspective. It's expensive from a human perspective. You know, in some of the stories we talk about, people die, and and that's a huge deal. And you may not be running a system where people are going to die, but you are running a system where or a company or an organization where the financial success of that is really important, and people's lives depend on that. And the final thing is that there's good news, right, because of the kind of shared properties of these systems, because of the fact that complexity underlies all of this, there is a set of tools that we can all use that doesn't cost millions of dollars to implement that is a way of shifting our thinking. It's it's not, um, it's simple, but it's not easy, but we can do it. We can overcome these things and make better decisions in our organizations to grow our companies. And with that, I'd like to say thank you. You can find out more about the book at rethinkrisk.net uh, and about me and our consulting company at www.system-logic.com. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. 
I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.